This message is a ministry of Plainville Baptist Church. www.plainvillebaptistchurch.org Good morning. Uh, children 3 to 11 are dismissed to Children's Church. And now a, uh, a prayer for the message today. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for um, all of us coming here. And Lord, as we um, prepare to hear Pastor Dave's message, that you open our hearts and minds and um, give him strength and conviction to deliver his message. And all these things, Lord, we pray to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Titus chapter 1. We're going to begin a series in the book of Titus, and I wanted to start it last year. I was hoping to start it last year, but God wasn't ready, and I was not either. And so we start this, we'll look at this book. Is there music somewhere playing? Uh, We'll start this book over, we'll look at this book over the next several months, and as we start, we want to read the first few verses of chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time, manifested even His Word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. So today as we look at this, and we're, we're not getting into the text per se, this text anyway, we're going to look at the book of Titus as an introduction. We're going to kind of take a 30,000 foot view of the book of Titus. We're going to kind of fly overhead and see it in one piece so that we can understand where, what Paul is doing, where he's going, and what his emphases are in this letter. And so it's, it's amazing because he clearly and emphatically explains in detail three very important ideas, and it's astonishing because the letter is so brief that he does this, but we see it, and he does it throughout each chapter as he goes. And the truths are linked to the Trinity. They're linked to the fact that God is the Father and the Son and the Spirit together. In this short letter, Paul writes to his disciple Titus. Titus had served with Paul going throughout the Roman world, bringing the gospel. And Paul sent Titus to Crete, to the island of Crete, to be able to establish Uh, the churches there, to set up leadership within the churches, to be able to uh, get them going, 
and Paul was writing this letter to Titus to remind him some of the things that he was going to have to focus on as he gets there or as he is there in Crete. And so Paul emphasizes these three Christian truths in this short period, in this short few chapters. And again and again, he is reminding us of their absolute significance. First of all, the reality and the expectation of eternal life. The reality and the expectation of eternal life. It's very clear, very important that Paul lays that out. Secondly, not only the reality and expectation of eternal life, but the necessity of sound doctrine. The necessity of sound doctrine. And again, he points that out throughout all three chapters. We're going to look at these two. And then the last one, the importance of good works in the life of the believer. The importance of good works in the life of the believer. Each chapter ties together these three indispensable truths with this overarching theme. So if you want the theme of the book of Titus, it is God our Savior. God our Savior. And in this, there is an incredible twist that describes the security of the deity of Jesus Christ in, teach, in the teaching of this sound doctrine, every place where Paul uses God our Savior three times in chapter 1, in chapter 2, and in chapter 3, every time he uses God our Savior, within the next couple of verses he uses Jesus Christ our Savior. In chapter 1, in verse 3, he says, at the proper time, manifested, God manifested even His Word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. In verse 4, Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace, peace, and, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. In chapter 3, he says it. But when Verse 4, when the kindness of God our Savior, Mike read that this morning, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Verse 6, whom the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Well, David, what about chapter 2? I skipped over that because chapter 2 is the pinnacle of this letter. And in the apex, in the topmost point in chapter, 10, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, he tells those servants to be well-pleasing to those who are there serving. He says in verse 10, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So what is the doctrine of God our Savior? Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you didn't get it before that, you'll see it right there. And so we understand that Jesus is God here as Paul says, God our Savior, 
Well, that's Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so let's look at these three truths that Paul describes under this overarching theme of God, our Savior. The first one is eternal life, salvation, the reality and the expectation of eternal life. And again, he describes this gift of eternal life. It's made available to everyone. It's made available to everyone. And each of these chapters focuses on a different person of the Trinity in regard to salvation. He says, you have eternal life because God the Father, because God the Son, because God the Holy Spirit work together to rescue you from eternal death that would have overtaken you because of your sin. So in verses 1 to 3, it's God the Father who is working in your salvation as the sovereign designer of it. Paul says, the bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. So here he is, the sovereign designer of salvation. He determined the means by which those chosen of God would come to him. So what are the means that he's using? And and he describes that. His truthfulness is guaranteed because he cannot lie. He promised it long ages ago. And we we see this as you read through the Scripture, as you begin and you consider, as Harold loves to say, the, the end from the beginning and see that God has a place for us. He has a place for humanity, heaven, the new heaven and the new earth. And through from Genesis 1 all the way through the end, God is working out that plan to bring humanity to Himself from the garden back to the garden. Man left the garden by his choice. He comes back to the garden by his choice. And we see here in Genesis 3.16, God promised, Eve, one of your descendants is going to crush the head of Satan. Soon after that, in Genesis 12, we hear that the promise to Abraham is, one of your descendants is going to be a blessing to the entire world. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be a Jew who comes into the world to save the world from their sin. And so we see this right from the very beginning. He promised long ages ago, right from the start of human history, and God cannot lie. But then we see He made it known now by the proclamation of the gospel. He says, at the proper time, the beginning of verse 3, but at the proper time, He manifested it. What does He mean by the proper time? At the proper time. He showed us what the gospel was. Had God sent it early, too early, before the Roman era, it would have been lost in the ancient depth of the mist of myth. This this God-man, the death and resurrection of the God-man would have been lost on us as another pagan legend. But it happened, if you would, in the modern era of the Roman world and this communication throughout. And the Scripture says, he says, at the proper time, the world was ready for the Messiah. It was the proper time for Jesus to come. 
The world was ready linguistically 300 years earlier. Alexander the Great had, had unified the world under one language, the Greek language, so that you could go from place to place and communicate the precious truth of the Word of God. The world was ready linguistically. It was ready politically. Uh, the Pax Romana had unified the world. You could go from place to place without having to uh, go through borders and customs, and it was all linked together. And so when people like Paul and the other apostles went from place to place, they were able to travel freely. The, there, yes, there were marauding bands and vigilantes and brigands, but Rome made it its purpose to clear the Roman roads of those things so that there would be free access to the people because certainly all roads led to Rome, but they also, you know what, led from Rome too. And so the gospel coming in to the center of the world went out like to Spain and to Britain and to other places in the world. They were ready politically. They were ready linguistically. They were ready religiously. You see, at that time, the world was, was becoming disenchanted with the, the Roman pantheon, the pagan system of worship, they saw that all the Roman gods were nothing but people like them. They murdered. They committed adultery. They were terrible drunkards. But they were gods. And the people said, how can they save us? How can they save us from our sin when they have sin? And so you had an influx of people into the Jewish synagogue, Gentiles. But they never wanted to become Jews because of that ritual of circumcision. They didn't want to enter into that. And so they were known as God-fearers. They wanted to know this true God, but they felt this distance between Him because there was nothing to bring them near because they would not become Jews. Here now enters the gospel and as Paul went to the synagogues and preached the gospel, there were both Jews and Gentiles in each. Those who were God-fearers, those who sought to hear the gospel, they were, the world was ready religiously. They had no salvation. They were wanting salvation. And here it was. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 4 that God sent His Son in the fullness of time. When, when, when the world was pregnant with readiness for the Messiah. Here He came. And in this second chapter, we see Jesus the Son highlighted in His role in salvation. In verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. That's Jesus. Jesus is the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to most men. Wait, wait, no, 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 sorry. Bringing salvation to all men. It's clear here. He is the grace of God. And, and what does this grace of God do in Jesus Christ? It, first of all, draws people to Him. All people to Him. Jesus said in John chapter 12, if I'm lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men to Myself. The Spirit of God working in the gospel, drawing people to Jesus Christ. And so we see this and recognize this. The grace of God saves. That's what verse 11 says, bringing salvation. Verse 12, it instructs, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live 
in a certain fashion, and it directs. In verse 13, looking for the blessed hope, it directs our eyes heavenward, waiting for Jesus to come back. That's what the grace of God does. In chapter 3, the Apostle Paul describes the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing salvation. In verses 4 to 7, based on the kindness of God, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Here is the work of the Spirit in salvation based on the kindness of God. God saves us, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to a new birth in God's mercy. There is the incontrovertible necessity of the new birth by the Holy Spirit. You have to have the new birth to have eternal life. So what does He do? What does the Spirit do? He washes us in regeneration and renewal. There's a new birth and a new creation that God brings to us through the Holy Spirit Himself. Paul says, what matters is the new creation, not any kind of ritual or rite or anything like that. You cannot enter the kingdom of God, the new heaven and the new earth, without having been made new by the Holy Spirit. But how are you made new by the Holy Spirit? How does that happen? How does the Holy Spirit do it? Are we simply just passive recipients of this new birth, unable to know who may receive it or how to receive it? Not at all. The Holy Spirit comes through Jesus Christ. That's what verse 6 says. Whom He poured out, whom God the Father poured out the Holy Spirit upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. It comes through Jesus. Well, how does it come through Him? In verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we're made righteous in the sight of God by His grace. He declares us perfect before God. So this grace, how does it come? Through faith. Paul doesn't say it here, but he says it very clearly in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. So we see here this very truth of the Holy Spirit working in our salvation. And so you see this this progression. God the Father works in our salvation. Jesus the Son has worked in our salvation. The Holy Spirit works in our salvation to bring us to Him to make us right in God's sight. The second truth Paul speaks about here is that necessity of sound doctrine. There's a necessity. And again, through these three chapters, again and again and again, Paul speaks of the importance of it. In in chapter 1, He highlights the proclamation and protection of sound doctrine that comes through pastoral oversight. That's that's what he lays out in in, in this first chapter. Paul tasked Titus with appointing pastors and overseers in each city. And he notes that their responsibility, their key responsibility, 
is to hold fast the faithful word in accordance with doctrine. Pastors are not just to hold it fast, but to teach it, to encourage others in it, and to refute those who oppose it. As Paul mentioned earlier, or mentioned in chapter 1, there were those, especially Jewish teachers, who were communicating a thing that they should not have, unsettling whole families as regard to the faith. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit under this next aspect. But here it is. In, in chapter 1, he says, Titus, you're to lay out uh, and, and appoint pastors, overseers over this, over these churches, so that they can stand in sound doctrine and bring sound doctrine he tasked Titus with doing that. And then in chapter 2, he tells Titus, Titus, as you're doing that, you be an example of sound doctrine. You do this. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Why? So that the older men can be sound in faith. So that the older women can teach what is good to the younger. So that the young men can be Pure in doctrine, sound in speech, as the church is growing. It's so important that Paul concludes near the end of the letter. This is important. Reject those who are contentious in their conduct and teaching after they have been warned. Those, he says, who are in, involved in foolish controversies, all kinds of unprofitable and worthless things, tell them, warn them, and then reject them. And so we see this, the importance of sound doctrine. Lastly, this morning, Paul talks about the indispensable work, the importance of good works in the life of the believer. Throughout each chapter, Paul stresses good works on the life of those who are sa- in the life of those who are saved. So why is it important that there is sound doctrine and a careful understanding of what the gospel is? It's important so that when it comes to speaking of the place of good works, they are not misunderstood. If we're not careful, good works will creep into the place where grace and faith alone belong. God our Savior, the theme of this letter, becomes God our assistant. Not our rescuer, but our step stool. So we have to be careful. I I, I think, and you know what? This has not changed over the last 2,000 years in the Jewish world. We need to understand this, that that's why, Jesus, that, that's why Paul mentions Jewish teachers who were teaching things for the, the, the goal of sordid gain. They were teaching these righteous, and he says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, because he was addressing these uh, Jewish teachers who were coming in and saying, oh, yes, there are works of righteousness that you need to do for your salvation. But it's, it's not something that was new to Paul. He well understood it. It was not something new. It was not something that just came about today in our era. You see, the, the, the Jewish people looked to the mitzvot, the commandments, righteousnesses, 
and, and, they, and they look for those to, to get them forgiveness, to get them in right standing with God. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's why Jesus, the same terms used today, 2,000 years later, why Jesus at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6 said, uh, beware not to do your righteousness before men. He lists the three main righteousnesses that were looked at by the Jews. He mentions almsgiving, and then he says prayer, and then he says fasting. They're still there today. They still look to them. As an example, my wife and I went to Israel in 2014 uh, for our anniversary, and as we, we were walking through the streets of Jerusalem one time, and these two guys grabbed me, right? Now, I'm like with a group of other people, so I'm like, well, maybe this isn't like real bad, whatever is going on, but they grabbed me, and one guy takes a phylactery and rolls it around my arm. The other guy puts his hand on my head and begins to pray. I think he's praying. Because he's speaking Hebrew, and I can read Hebrew, but it's a lot different trying to hear and understand something and speak something than just being able to read it. And so he's doing that, and he, the other guy's holding me, and um, after they're done, they put their hands out. <laughs> See, this is their righteousness. It's prayer and almsgiving, and the only thing they didn't force me to do was to fast, except the longer they held my arms, we were on our way to lunch, so it was keeping me from eating. Um, but, but those are the same things today that, would, that Paul was addressing in, in, in Crete. There were these, he says, especially those of the circumcision who are teaching these things that ought not be done. So understand what's going on here, why the necessity, Paul, the, the, the importance Paul lays upon salvation and sound doctrine as we look at what works are. Because for these people, their works became to them their glory. Their works, their mitzvot, their righteousnesses, their commandments became their glory. And so Paul said, by clearly expounding the truth of salvation and showing that works are in no way contributor toward it, Paul then describes the necessity in the life of the believer not uh, of works, not to earn eternal life, but to adorn and, or, or beautify the doctrine of salvation. See, it's, it's, it's for this very reason that works are not required for eternal life, but simply an outworking of the gratitude we have for such a salvation, such a love of God, that now we have a Father whom we love and whom we know and who knows us in a personal relationship. And it makes good work a special glory not to us, but to God our Savior. And that's the point of it. You know, as I was meditating on this and thinking about the, the, the importance of these good works, the Lord brought my mind to the pro book of Proverbs. And, and, I, and I said, because I, I, was, I was praying, Lord, what, what kind of example might help, help us to understand the place of good works in the life of the believer? You've heard that proverb, apples of gold... In settings of silver. Well, what is that? Well, think about it. If you have something beautiful that you want to display, this nice gold setting, these apples of gold, right? We used to have put cornucopias up on our table. If you 
maybe you're older, you remember that? I remember my grandmother had a cornucopia up with gourds and things. And, and so if you wanted to have these, you had these golden apples, well, what would you do to offset them? You'd put them on a platter of silver. You didn't put them on a platter of gold because that would detract from those golden apples. No, you, you put them on a platter of silver because silver is not gold. Silver is completely different than gold. And what's being promoted, what's being seen, what's being shown is what's being adorned, what's being made beautiful is God's salvation. That's the difference. If we understand that not by works of righteousness which we have done, and yet in that gratitude, in that outworking of praise to God, there's an importance of good works in the life of the believer. As soon as we say that this has anything to do with our salvation, we're placing a gold platter under those apples of gold. We're detracting from the apples, from the picture, from the setting, instead of beautifying the setting. And so, Paul says in chapter 1, as he begins talking about these good works, he says, the unsaved are worthless for any good works. In verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their works they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good work. The unsaved can't even accomplish good works because they're looking to them for their justification. They aren't beautiful. They're worthless. They're detestable, Paul says. But then in chapter 2, he says in verse 7, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine. There needs to be the purity of understanding what the gospel is to be able to have an example of good deeds. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, he says, beautify the doctrine with good works. Beautify that salvation. Not pilfering, showing all good faith that they will adorn the doctrine of our God in every respect. It's an adornment. It's a beautifying of that. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, after you're saved, when you're saved here, we're instructed to deny ungodliness, looking for the blessed hope. Why? Verse 14, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That means we're to be on fire for good deeds. Consumed with that. Why? Because of the gratitude we have toward God for having saved us and given us this life. Zealous for good deeds. In our relief of our conscience. See, when, when your conscience is relieved about where you're going to spend eternity, when the weight of sin is lifted from your shoulders and there's the joy in your heart, when guilt is removed from you because of the gospel, you can be zealous for good deeds. Oh, I want to serve God. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, we are to be intent. Verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement. What is? This gospel 
is a trustworthy statement concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to, be, to engage in good deeds. To be careful. That means to be thoughtful, to be thinking on how am I supposed to serve God? How am I supposed to be engaged in good deeds? Thinking carefully as to how we ought to serve Him. And then in verse 14, he says, we need to learn how to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. To meet pressing needs. That, that's benevolence. We, we, we talked about this, this pastor. We've never met, but we're related to him by blood. We're related to him by the blood of Christ. And we want to see the work of God go forth in country B. Because we too have been recipients of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says that. Why? In verse 8, he says it's, it's profitable, it's beneficial for God's work in the world. It, it promotes the work of God in the world as we are intent on good deeds. And then verse 14, he says, it makes us fruitful. It makes us fruitful. We bear fruit out of that. God allows these things in which we are engaged to be able to bear fruit for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we think on these as in the coming months, as we look at this, we're going to see these three important emphases of truth, and we have to be careful that we don't mix them where they ought not to be mixed, but we don't separate them where they ought not to be separated. The gospel, its reality and its expectation that we have in Him, the sound doctrine that protects that, and the good works to which we're called after we have been saved by Him. And so Paul lays that out, and we're going to see the working out of this in the coming weeks and months. How am I supposed to live this out? How am I supposed to put this into practice in my life as just someone who's trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this day, O oh God. And we pray, Father, for Your work in our own hearts. Help us to see who you are, what you've done for us, how the triune God of fellowship and love has reached down to us to bring us to himself. We thank you for that. Father, you are good, and we bless you in it. Help us, Lord, to be those people rescued from the wrath that was resting upon us to be zealous for good works that you direct us in, that we might walk in them. Father, we thank you and praise you. I ask, oh God, in, your, in this time, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you please stand, we're going to sing 185. As we get ready to sing 185, let me encourage you. Maybe you're here this morning. And you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior. The weight of your sin is upon you. 
and you say, I need relief from that. Here's the good news, that the grace of God has appeared to you, bringing salvation to you if you'd receive it. And if you receive it, He'll never leave you nor forsake you. If you need Christ, would you come? We'll not delay long this morning. But if you come because you need Him, please don't delay. Let's sing. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His love. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for this day. Help us this day to serve You and honor You, to seek, to love You. Father, You are good. and We thank You for the salvation You've provided through Your Son. We bless you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.